Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jamar. Today's episode 134, and we're going to be interviewing Vig A. How are you doing this morning, sir? I'm doing awesome. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. And actually, I should have said good afternoon. Um, yeah. We are going to start this right now. So let's dive in and get started. Tell me about your childhood. My childhood, I would say, was a good one. You know, when I look back at it, I remember it as just adventurous, fun. I grew up in the city of Chicago. And when I tell people that, they think gangs, rough and tumble. But I was actually in a, uh, almost in the northern suburbs of Chicago and pretty idyllic life. Um, there was five kids. My dad uh, worked in real estate. My mom worked in real estate. I went to school, went to college. Um, I loved baseball, loved the Chicago Cubs, just loved adventure. You know, that's the one thing I remember is I just loved being outdoors, loved being outside. And then school was a different environment. Um, I've had medical issues most of my life or in my childhood. Uh, I suffered three medical events, two that almost caused me to die. And um, what kind of things? Well, I sort of want to lay this out a little bit differently, but there, it, it was medical emergencies that also spawned into traumatic events. Um, one, I had an appendicitis attack where I was so sick that I had to suffer uh, two weeks in the hospital, and it was meant going to a Catholic hospital, and the way it was run, another time I had my tonsils out, this is the one that really sticks with me. So you think tonsils, you're going to have ice cream, you're going to have a great time about it. My brothers and sisters all had it out. And I, this was my turn to have the ice cream for a week. And when I woke up in the recovery room, my throat was on fire. You, know, you would expect that after having them yanked out. So of course, I start crying. I'm a 10 years old. I'm a kid. You know, I'm in this strange, dark recovery room all by myself. And a nurse comes up and she's a nun in the habit, the whole thing. And she's like, you have to stop crying. I'm like, okay, well, that's kind of hard to do. And she's like, I'm like, I want to go back to my room. She goes, you can't go back to your room until you stop crying. Real mean. And she walks away. I'm like, so I'm crying. And this went on for two and a half hours. So I'm crying the entire time. The nurses kept coming back in more and more agitated with me. Finally, there was a shift change. And then finally, a nun that was nice to me came by and said, she got me a glove of ice. And that's all I needed was a glove of ice just to stop crying. Fast forward, we go home and my dad was showing me the bedpan they gave me, this big chrome bedpan. He goes, in case you feel sick, I said, I can use it. I threw up. I threw up and filled the, blood, uh, the bedpan with blood. My dad freaks out, dumps it out, comes back. I throw up and fill it again. So this is two quarts of blood out of a 10-year-old body. I'm in the process of dying at that moment. So they rushed me to the hospital. I'm in the emergency room. The last thing I remember, those two doors opening up, and then I woke up the next day. Apparently, I had almost died. You know, with two quarts of blood, it took three interns and three doctors to hold a 10-year-old down where they gave me uh, emergency blood transfusion. And during that event, I had a near-death experience. You know, the white, the ceiling opened up. I went above the bed. I'm watching them working on me. I see the priest next to the bed with my mom reading me last rites. I'm going. 
and I get up through the white light and I see my grandfather. The interesting part is he died a year before I died. So here's this man, I'm hugging him, I'm feeling him, I'm feeling his overalls, everything about it. We're talking, he was a great fisherman. I was so excited to be there. And I'm like, this is the happiest day of my life. I never felt more joy than that moment. And even still today, I want to go back. And uh, I said, I'm so happy I get to stay here. He's like, you can't stay here. Your mom still needs you. I wake up in the hospital bed. And my mom told me the whole story about the transfusion and almost dying. And, um, you know, I forgot about the event that happened that morning in the recovery room. And um, what was it? There was another medical event. And I think it was, I had a kidney infection in 19... Real quick, do you remember how that made you feel when you went to the other place and came back? Was that something that was, like, I feel like I might have been scared or something, like what just happened? I have No, I I was upset. I was was very upset that I had to go back. I did not want to leave. And and that was upsetting, but, you know, you wake up and there's your mom sleeping next to you on 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 a chair. So quickly, I'm back in the real world life was kind of okay, but that really bad event disappeared, you know, and and I bring it up a lot in some of my discussions because of growing up in the 60s, it was corporal punishment was okay back then, parents were allowed to spank you, nuns were allowed to hit you, Um, priests were allowed to hit you, so it was a different world than what I'm used to today, and, you know, the big thing was, is big boys don't cry, so growing up your whole life, not able to channel these events, these emotions that you're not allowed to show because you're a big boy. And I realized that that kind of took a bite out of me and had a pretty big impact because once you get addicted and you're trying to figure out why you're there in the first place, my conclusion is I've tied this all into you know, where I was and how I got to where I was because of these events. And you know, realizing I never completed the experience, you know, I was never able to reconcile it. And um, it it was a very difficult thing to overcome. But uh, as far as it feels, it's always haunted me. Like, ever since that happened at 10 years old, and now I'm 62, for 50 years, I've been, when can I go back? And when I was drinking and just consuming all this alcohol, it got to the point where, you know what, this could kill me. And I was okay with that. I don't know what snapped me out of it. But you know, eventually, I woke up and decided to get sober. But um, yeah, the rest of my childhood was just growing up and trying to succeed. You know, what was the second you you said there was a second incident with your kidney? Well, yeah, and that was just I I had 106 fever for about five days. Oh, my God. That's the highest I've ever heard. the, The interesting part is this is during the Hong Kong pandemic. And so I caught the, the, the flu and then I got renal failure, which is kidney failure. And um, that's what almost killed me. I was pissing blood at, at nine years old and I got last rites then. So twice in my life, I had a priest say, have fun in heaven. You know, so I, I shouldn't be here, you know, and especially with my addiction, it almost killed me. Um, I, I call myself a ghost, you know, I, I'm on borrowed time, but this is the best time of my life. So I'm happy with it. So um, the childhood, I think, I, I still say it was okay. But when I look back to what those nuns did, and the priests did, 
And even what my parents allowed to happen, they didn't know this was happening until they kind of pieced together the events. But you just, it just, it's stunning that those things that happen, people go to jail today for, you know, yeah. that, that was literally child abuse and there was abandonment episodes. So really where this is all leading me is to that classic childhood trauma. Now, my alcoholism started, I almost feel like I was born an alcoholic and, you know, I've always fought that inherited part of it, but I didn't know until I was 35 years old that my dad was an alcoholic. All I thought is he never drank. But when my mom told me that she almost left him because of his drinking, it was a, you know, choose the bottle or me. And he chose the family. But I was never introduced to that problem in his life. And I never got to talk to him about it. Um, so I really never saw him drink. But, you know, I got the details of his life and his participation in that. And um, I can say what fair certainty what I inherited was his appreciation of alcohol. I inherited his enthusiasm for alcohol. Our family is German by trade and we have German recipes for beer and glug and all that. Alcohol was always a big part of our family's festivities and celebrations. It wasn't just sit around and get drunk. It was happy stuff. It was the good part of drinking that we all miss. Um, so that was infused into my life as I grew up that alcohol was part of it. And um, you know, I even remember having my first drink. It was at my cousin's wedding. I was 15 years old at the time. And the bartender gave me a rum and coke. And I'll never forget what he told me. It was really interesting. He obviously knew I was, you know, um, too young. But he said, kid, don't get hooked on this rum stuff. He goes, pick something else. That rum is bad for you. He goes, it'll yeah. up your gut. So, and that stuck in my head. And I really never drank rum after that, you know. Um, I, yeah, I chose to drink vodka straight from the bottle, you know, skip the glasses. That, that just creates something to wash. But um, so when, obviously when I got old enough to drink, and, and this was interesting. So I think all these things add up to why I was so enthusiastic about alcohol. So when you're young, you're like, I can't wait to turn 18. When I was um, at the age, coming of age, Wisconsin was still 18, legal age to drink. And I lived in Illinois. So it was just an hour drive to get to Wisconsin at 18 and drink legally. Illinois then had 19. So the next year when I turned 19, I was legal in Illinois and life was great. Halfway through that, and I was in college now, they changed the legal age back to 21. So for six months, I wasn't legal to drink, but we still drank. I was in a fraternity, you know, and I'm sure being in a fraternity added to my drinking quotient. But, you know, all those things are just building blocks for this really love affair with alcohol. We had so much fun with the with the beer parties, and I did as a kid. Um, you know, whatever, my childhood just did not prepare me for adult life. You know that you had I a lot of good. It sounds like a lot of good was associated with alcohol. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. There was nothing bad associated. To it. We didn't have the classic falling down drunk. We did at parties. There was always somebody overserved themselves. But as far as the relatives and all that, it was just whenever we got to family get-togethers, the beer would come out. Um, and then me, uh, my first introduction into the altered state of mind was actually when I was 14. And this, I think, is really, really important because there's so much to this addiction process. And, and whatever I say is my experience. I, I'm not some expert at this. What I know is from 15 years of fighting, 
to be sober, to get sober and stay sober. Um, what you, what I didn't introduce is I am four years, I'm, I'll be four years sober in August. So August 13th is my four year anniversary date. So to get where I'm sitting almost four years sober was a crap load of work. And when you see all these things tying in that you're just like, okay, there's a lot going on here. But um, I almost forgot where I was going with this, but you know, to try to look back and see this love affair then blossom into what do I do as an adult? And taking it back to that experience when I was 14, part of my dysfunction in my life was those traumatic episodes and also the trauma of moving. Yeah, I can almost call myself an army brat. I moved into five different schools in elementary, uh, my elementary school. Uh, I had tremendous school refusal where I, I didn't want to go to school. I, I cried for like a week, I think, in kindergarten. Um, and so I, I changed schools in first grade. And then with the issues in school. So here I'm in second grade. I, I, I thought I loved school. But at home, I was beating up my brothers and sisters. I was apparently a tyrant. My mom didn't know what to do with me. And I, she told me this right before she died, that she was considering putting me in military school. I don't remember any of this. There's a lot I don't remember in my childhood. But apparently, I was so dysfunctional from the abuse from these nuns in the Catholic school system that it filtered through to my everyday life. She went there, read him the riot act, pulled me out of Catholic school, dropped me the next day in, in public school. You literally, it's like, it's like the Wizard of Oz. You're in black and white, also in this colorful world of people where they get to choose what they wanted to wear. They're wearing colorful clothes. They're standing in the aisle away from their desk. I'm, I'm in school going, what are you guys out of your mind? You're gonna get spanked for talking. I mean, that's how they had me programmed in the Catholic school system. Um, and then my mom said it was like a switch went off. She goes, all of a sudden, you weren't biting your nails. You stopped wetting your bed. All these issues I had stopped, just like that. And, you know, I kind of look back and say, that's when my life kind of felt normal. Um, but I never could sink my brain into schoolwork. I, I always was an average student. Um, and then... When I got out of high school, I was so excited to start working. And my dad said, nope, you got the rest of your life to work. You're going to college. So I bend to that demand and I went to college and I struggled. I struggled so bad. I got kicked out twice. Um, so I was on a different trajectory in life. And life was just interesting, except for all these requirements of life that said you had to do these things. And I didn't want to do them. And to compensate, when I was 14, there was this new group of kids I wanted to be accepted. So when you're shifted from environment to environment, you need to survive. And so the only thing I had was my home base and I needed to survive outside. So I found this group of guys, they accepted me and they take me up in the garage attic and say, let's light this thing up. So here I, I go from um, that stranger danger drugs are really, really bad in Chicago to move into the suburbs where now the kids got no supervision, they got time on their hands and they got money. They can buy the pot. They have no supervision, they're smoking it. And if I wanted to be with them, I had to smoke it. It was the most traumatic day of my life to smoke it because I was breaking every moral rule I ever had, but I did it to be accepted. I was surviving at that moment by taking that hit of weed. It, Old you know, were you? So I could be, 
Pardon? How old were you? I was 14, eighth grade. And so, and I remember the effects of that being burnt out and tired. I'm like, why did I do that? I was on the swim team. You know, I was going to be a, a, a really good athlete. I found my tribe. I was happy with these people. I, and, and then the biggest part was that I realized I could regulate how I felt. For the first time in my 14 years, I could change how I felt to something that I preferred. I could then forget about all the chores and the grades and the school that I had to do. And I was happy. You know, I was finally happy. And that just repeated itself through high school into college. And then when you get out of college, you're supposed to work, you know, and my college didn't prepare me. You know, my, my passion was radio, TV, film. And when I got out, I couldn't get a job if my life depended on it. I got the, the night shift at a Spanish TV station and I didn't even know how to speak Spanish. Hmm. So I struggled, I fumbled around and I stumbled into a business that my dad invested in and he put me in charge of it. So I'm in charge of a business at 23 years old, not knowing anything. So talk about pressure. But when I got home, that pot and that little six pack of beer kept me going. And fortunately at that age, I didn't have any money. So I wasn't like getting over my skis in terms of inviting or anything. It was just get high, go to sleep and go to work. And then it just, I can look back at almost every stage of my life when you up the ante with stress and responsibilities, my need to relieve that stress became higher. Of course, I got married. I got divorced by my first wife for whatever reason. The only way I could turn off that pain of that divorce was to turn into Elvis. And I turned into Elvis. I was drinking a fifth. I was smoking everything I can get my hands on. Anything I could afford, I was taking over-the-counter medicines, anything I could to turn it off. So that was my first big, oh shit, I need to turn this noise off experience that I remember. Um, I recovered from that. I met my current wife. We fell in love. We had kids. Boom, that first baby. I remember after his birth, I was in that parking lot, ran straight home, cracked open a bottle. I mean, I needed that alcohol. I don't look at that as a need per se, but I was by myself and I, and I celebrated. So just repeat that all the way through the next 20 years of my life. And um, well, actually, it was very short after that. I was self-employed that entire time. I got offered a job from a company I was buying my supplies from. He says, I need a guy like you. Would you like to try this? And he says, I'll give you a salary of benefits. I said, and with a six-month-old son, I said, that sounds great. So I took a chance. And now I'm getting paid good money. What do you do with good money? And because of the job, I couldn't necessarily smoke pot because of drug tests. So what do you do? You switch gears to alcohol. And that was just a martini on the front porch after a day of work. And it never really went any farther than that. You know, one or, and maybe if my wife had another one, I'd have another one. But then as I got promoted to general manager and then shit starts happening at work and then the kids start having demands and going to here, going to there, then there's marital problems because you're not on the same page. You want something. She's not giving it to you. She, she wants something. You're not giving it. You start drinking. You start drinking a little more to calm that stress down lockstep everything i did in my life the more i piled on the more i drank and i went from two or three drinks a night to the wife goes to bed and i'm staying up another hour drinking a couple of more drinks ultimately to now at 48 years old i'm realizing 
I have a need for, oh, you know, I talked about that first event with the divorce. So I've got the traumatic experience of the childhood. Then I got the traumatic experience of a divorce. That was insane. I mean, I don't wish that on anybody, but my wife left me for a heroin addict. Not that they had anything to do with us. I was self-employed, working my ass off. She was in another world, needed to be around these losers. And that, that just exploded my brain. How does somebody you love go in that direction and just destroyed me? And, and, and that affected me throughout the rest of my life. I, I didn't have trust of anyone close after it. I couldn't even trust. Thankfully, I could trust my current wife. But it just was such an impactful experience. So we all know what 9-11 means, right? Mm-hmm. So 9-11 happens. I have this wonderful trip to Disney World, from Chicago to Disney World. We get on the plane. We're going there 15 minutes into the flight. This is on 9-11, 8 in the morning, 8.15 in the morning. A pilot comes on. He goes, well, due to terrorist activity, we've um, been told by the FAA and our parent company, we must land at the next airport. And I'm like, uh, he says, and, and because the entire East Air, uh, East Coast air traffic control was knocked out by this, tr- this terrorist event. We all know what happened, but that's what they told us. So we land and immediately the cell phones come out. We all find out they're flying planes into buildings. And I'm like, I'm in a fucking plane. Get me the hell out of here. We sat in that runway for an hour and a half. You look out the window, the entire uh, runway was filled with planes coming down like leaves on a fall day. And we sat there. Finally, they, a terminal opened up for us to go. So, and, and, the minute we landed, the phones come out, everybody's screaming. I mean, it was terror, like in the movies. And I'm like, holy cow. So we get to the terminal, doors open up, more screaming. It's the Indiana National Guard yelling, get the fuck out of the plane now. Run, run. They got M16s, they're pointing. So we have no idea what's going on other than planes are flying and exploding all around us. And so I'm terror. I'm in sheer terror, trying to be calm with my little kids. So fast forward, we finally get through the entire day, and I'll never forget this. This is the first time I ever said it. We sat down in the hotel room. I said, I need a drink. That was 2001, 21 years ago. I said, I need a drink. And from that day on, that was my method of calming the fuck down. I mean, I I had no other way to calm down, and I didn't know there was other ways. The way I put it, is what happened to me when I was little, that traumatic event and big boys don't cry was my blueprint for how I responded to stress, which was there was none. To sit in a bed with those bars around you and nowhere to go but under your blanket and cry in the most pain you've ever been in, that was my blueprint for how I dealt with life. And when I found that pot and alcohol could take that away from me, I was sold. And that was, that was my recipe to get better or to deal with stress. And then into my career here, the old owner says, hey, you're doing a great job. Would you like to buy the company? So 10 years after that 9-11 event, I buy the company. Five years after, and he sold it to me and two other partners. Three years into that relationship, the one partner decides to start stealing from us. I then have to deal with catching a partner, stealing, getting him arrested, buying him out, all these things are exploited. Then I had to do the same thing with the other partner. So ever since 9-11, it's just been one, bam, bam, beat me down, beat me down, beat me down, and alcohol kept me alive. 
alcohol kept me getting up and going to the next day. But now I'm drinking an entire bottle a day. I mean, from the minute, I never drank here at work. That's the one thing I can say. So that you can imagine finishing a bottle from 5 p.m. to midnight, that's drinking pretty heavy. But it, it was every night. And on the weekends, it was three bottles over a weekend. And um, here's something I want to tell everybody is we all get old. And we all have things happen as we get old. And you think this is old people stuff that's happening. So around 48, I started getting high blood pressure. I started having GERDs. I started having sleep apnea. You know, this is all par for the course at 50 years old, 52 years old. I'm being treated for old man stuff with medications, therapies. Just keep taking this and enjoy the rest of your life is what my doctor was telling me. So what happened when I quit? Within a month, all of it went away. Those were alcohol diseases. Those weren't old man diseases. My blood pressure was directly due to that. The GERDs, all that crap in my stomach was due to the alcohol. Uh, it's just, it, it's stunning to me. I, I changed doctors because of that. So how could you be prescribing this? And he knew I was an alcoholic. Um, I, I can't not get mad about that. And um, so if anybody's out there and you got health issues, gout, if you got gout, you think it's because of meat, forget about it. It's booze. If you're drinking, that gout's from booze. I, I had gout all the time. I haven't had it in four years. So, I, I mean, pay attention to your body, people. Let the body speak to you and tell you what's really going on. And if you're drinking and you're seeing this, just stop. Find a way out of this, you know, and, and Jim's got some great things going on here, but um yeah, I just needed to throw that out there. That that yeah. that was one of the big reveals about this whole thing. When I finally got sober, it's like if I knew that all those things that I was taking prescription pills for would go away if I stopped drinking, I would have stopped 20 years ago. I mean, it's that insane. So um, you can tell I'm passionate about this. Yeah, absolutely. So what was the actual first age that you ever used? Used? You used any drink? type of drug. Well, again, 14 was the first time I took a hit of marijuana. 15 was my first official drink. When I started partying regularly, it was probably like freshman year of high school. That became almost a, not quite daily, but once I got to college, I could probably, this is how many days I've not had a high in my body in, in 30 years. So um, I always thought it was normal. I was regulating my life. I liked to feel the way I felt. And I'll tell you, I wouldn't have stopped drinking if it wasn't for the fact that I almost killed myself. I mean, there were so many things starting to go wrong. You talk about gout, when that gout would hit, I couldn't walk to get the mail. And that was just during a gout episode. But because my drinking was so chronic, it became daily. I couldn't walk to get the mail. Sitting here, this was my hand trying to sign a check, you know, just like in the TV trying to appease. This was me. I couldn't, I had tremors. I was dying. I mean, um, my, my liver enzymes are going through the roof. And even when I, I, I finally checked into inpatient or outpatient, and even they said, we're not sure about you, dude. You know, you should maybe be in the hospital. But I was stubborn and I got through it. But, um, you know, so I can't think of how many times I, I took those I'm an alcoholic quizzes. So I was aware of this when I was in my 40s. You know, I was well aware of it. And then around 45, 46, and I could start seeing the effects taking place. And then I'm really going off the rails with my choices. I, I'm, 
my wife and I are miles apart. We're just surviving in our marriage at this point in time. I'm dealing with all this crap at work. I didn't care about anything else but getting through the day and then drinking. It got to the point where I had a bottle in my desk. I had a bottle in my car and I had a bottle in my briefcase. So at four o'clock, boom, a bottle came out and I, that much of it was gone by the time I got home. I drank that much by the time I kissed my wife and then that much for the rest of the night. That was my day every day. Um, and then it started affecting me and the hangovers every Monday just got to be, I can't do this anymore. I called up a good fraternity brother. I said, Tom, I'm done. Can you take me to an AA meeting? That was so hard for me to do because I didn't believe in God and I didn't want to be one of them because I knew once I did that, I was one of them. I was now an alcoholic. I was now an AA person. And, and that was something I so, I mean, I resisted for years and that, and that's a difficult thing to do. And back in 19, uh, was it 2008, there wasn't any of this online activity. There was one website, it's called mywayout.org. And I still have a journal there. That was where I started my journal entry in 2008, February 2008. And I still write in it to this day. And that's why I advocate for journaling. But, you know, there was nothing else there but AA. There was an upstart, I think, called Smart at a time. But they were so clinical-based that I, there wasn't even public meetings at the time. So it was AA. I had no choice. And I went and I did the AA shuffle. I was good about it. And I got 78 days that first time out. I was really, really proud of myself. I did what everybody did. I said, I can have one. And I had that one glass of wine with dinner and I felt empowered. I felt great. Did it again, you know, a week later with the wife out to dinner. And then I needed that something else. And then I said, okay, I can get that one bottle. And the wife and I had one martini. Kaboom. It just exploded, and within weeks, I'm back to slamming it. And um, so, from that first time in February 2008, all the way up to 2018, 10 years, you can pull out that diary yourself. I thought I had four day ones. When I went to finally write some of this stuff down and see what the hell happened, there was 14 of them that I wrote. And I know there had to have been hundreds more where I dumped out the bottle, said, I'm not drinking again. And by four o'clock, I was at the liquor store buying another bottle. And that just went on and on and on. And when you're this high strong and this demand in, and you had the kids, I had the wife, I had the business, I needed something to turn it off. And here, that blueprint of my 10-year-old body is running me now. That blueprint of drink and hide, hide and drink. It was something I didn't know I was doing, but that's what started it all. That was what kept me in that it's survival. And if, it, you know, I don't want to keep saying weird things that don't mean anything to you, but we have a survival brain. That survival brain taught me to find that tribe of people that would accept me and, and protect me and take care of me. And they smoked pot. I had my tribe of alcoholics, you know, that was their thing. And they were fun people. You know, and any other tribes didn't appeal to me. So I'm surviving there. And then after <clears throat> trying to find the live, you, you try to survive. And that survival brain is what drove all this. And you have to override that. You engage this part between the ears. That's your executive function. That's your executive brain where you can make choices. And you have to override that gut that's saying, I want to drink. You know, and then you're like, nope, we got to do something differently here. So once you pull the trigger and say, I need to do something about it, you have to do something about it and, and follow through with 
making the choices you're going to have to make there, there going forward. And being an AA, the choice was simply to believe in God and follow the steps and not drink. I couldn't apply that to my real life. My real life was just too heavy duty. And, and I'll be all honest is I did not get a sponsor. Um, I didn't believe in a God. So I think those were a pushbacks that I just couldn't overcome. I look back, if I had a sponsor, I might've been able to do better, but um, there was nothing that would take that bottle out of my hand. I, I, my wife and I had divorce already set in motion. My kids turned their back on me. All I had was this loan commitment to this business that meant anything to me. So I knew I had to work here and that's all that mattered. Everything else fell apart. The rest of my life was in ruins. And um, I'll never forget, my wife says, this is your problem, you fix it or I'm out of here. And she had the bags packed. And, um, and it was also one of those moments, it was probably the lowest moment of my life. And I, I'm not ashamed to not share it here is I agreed to co-sign a loan for my now 18 year old son to buy a car. And we were supposed to go to a dealership and me, I'm the alcoholic, you know, big stressful moment to help the kid. I've got to have my drink. I'm just like this. And he walks around the corner and sees his dad doing this. Just the look in his face, the, that devastation that he had was my tipping point. That was my bottom. It, um, you just have to stop, you know, and that was my moment to say, I can't do this anymore. And, um, my body's falling apart and I'd been in therapy this whole time with a therapist and his solution was go to AA. So I had to get out of that box. What I was doing wasn't working. So I'm on the internet, I'm looking, I'm looking, and I'm looking for a local therapist. And I see one that has those four letters next to it that I'd never seen before. It's an EMDR. And he was an addiction therapist. And I looked that up and I go, what the hell is EMDR, eye movement, um, desensitization, reprocessing. I look it up and I was like, what the hell is that? And so I call him up. I go, what's this all about? And he started telling me, how the brain can get into a certain mode. And he starts talking about neuroplasticity um, and all these things that I'm like, I never tried any of this. And then he, he mentioned trauma and I'm like, what trauma, you know, all these things together. So he takes me in and he goes, um, we start talking and he says, a lot of times what we find with addicted people is there is a connection to childhood trauma. And because big boys don't cry, I'm thinking I'm survived. I'm whole. I'm one piece. I didn't die. So anything that happened to me couldn't have been that bad, right? And I start telling about the nuns. And I start telling about 9-11. He's like, oh, where do you pick any one of those? You know, and then you start to realize that with what happened to me, people go to jail for that kind of stuff. And I'm, I'm starting to see, okay, that wasn't good. And then when we started talking about it, and I can see how my brain responded to those traumas and anything else that happened. I, I just, I was a type A, I got angry and mad at everything. And again, obviously, I think I mentioned I was beating up my brothers and sisters. So I had a real problem with processing emotions. Um, again, I couldn't cry or I cried like crazy. And it was something else about my childhood that I'll never forget. We have five kids in my family, five, not 10. 
and we're all close to the same age. It was one after the other. So nobody ever got attention unless you were bad. And if I wanted a hug or something, I couldn't do it because my mom was busy with somebody else. So I never got hugged. I only got spanked, but I felt loved. You know, none of that makes sense. But somehow this was the, the footprint of my life and the blueprint for how I dealt with life. And you got a dad who was an alcoholic. You got a family that loves alcohol and I'm an alcoholic. No surprise. So how do you fix that? You know, how do you take that all apart? So my biggest problem was I didn't know how to channel that energy. I did not know how to let go of that trauma. Because the minute you mention it, boom, I'm up here. I'm in that elevated red zone. And as we, what, what EMDR does, it's kind of like a tapping. And if he says, go ahead, think about 9-11. I'm up here. You know, I'm just going, Wah! And then we talk about it. And, and what you realize is I was okay before 9-11 and I was okay after. I was in that hotel afterwards and I was okay. And that's what you do is you come to realize bad things, you're okay before them and you're always okay after them. There's a meme that circulates. I've survived 100% of my bad days. It's true. You do survive these things. And if you consider that, how do you survive it better? And that's what we did is we learned methods for me to cope and regulate with the moments. And, and one is to just take a pause and, and learn to breathe. And you could even do the tapping. So if I'm thinking at 9-11, I'm up here. And then as you think about, okay, I'm okay. And I'm sitting here and close in my office, I'm safe. I'm secure. I have nothing to worry about. So now you're tapping slowly. And now you're, instead of being up here, just in those five seconds, I'm down here. So anytime I'm facing stress, I can have my hands in my pocket and I'm, I'm tapping. I can do um, pressure point, pinch points. There's so many ways you can self-regulate yourself throughout the day. And the interesting part is these are methods to combat getting stressed. What I learned in my four years now sober, I can't stay sober if that's what I did. If all I'm doing is is bringing myself down, I wouldn't be four years sober. I would, I'd be rebounding again. Because what, what I found is to get rid of the stress. Don't get up here in the first place. Don't have those triggering events to make you think about that. Learn self-regulating techniques. Learn meditation. Learn deep breathing. And learn to take a pause and say, I'm getting upset for a reason here. Think of halt. Are you hungry, angry, lonely, tired? That is such a great technique to run every moment through because you can just quickly take a snack, take a sip of water, go for a walk, call somebody on the phone. I guarantee you're, you're defusing 90% of your day problems by just doing that. And then when you think, okay, what's stressing me out? For me, it was too much. I had simply too much on my plate. My wife got me a pottery class as a way for me to de-stress. I love pottery, but in sobriety, I had to go to meetings. I had to do my studies. I had to do my exercise. I had to play my guitar. I needed these emotional releases to undo the stress of my day. So what I did is I got rid of the pottery because that gave me six more hours a week to just calm down. My preferred thing to do is this. And this thing next to me is my second preferred thing to do. Anything else on top of that, 
elevates my stress level. So even to go out to dinner, I'm like, that means going to a place full of people drinking. Do I want to do that? Or maybe I want to stay home and order out. These are the choices you make to, to maintain yourself at a point where you're not here. The key is to not get here. And there's so much you can do to keep you down here. Like I'm on day six of a really bad knee problem. So for six days, I've been sleeping with a pillow under my knee. If I roll, it wakes me up in extremely bad pain. So I've had shitty sleep. I woke up today so tired. If I sit, I'll start falling asleep. But I knew I had a full day ahead of me. I knew that this was going to be a tough day. But I knew at five o'clock, I can grab that baby next to me. I can go out in the garden. I can do the things that I know I will enjoy to do. So once you start to understand what is it that is causing you to want to drink, you remove it. I mentioned my wife. We, I think, with like anybody else, had our issues. We still have our issues. I have this business. Can you imagine running a business during the pandemic? And right now we have these supply issues. I have orders from November of materials I haven't got that customers are waiting for me to get to make. And this is July. Talk about stress. Every day is up here. But I don't come in there because I don't let myself be at that point when I come in. I know it's going to be a bad day. So I come to terms with it. It, it is no longer a burden. It's no longer a sandbag I have to carry with me because the more sandbags you carry of all these obligations and responsibilities and you're carrying that all around with you, I go home like this. No, I leave it here. I drop it. When I leave home, I leave home at home. And when I come to work, I'm just carrying the work sandbag. When I go home, I'm just carrying the, the home sandbag. And if my wife wants to pile on, kid wants to pile on, I'm ready for that because I don't have work there. And I can, I maintain a balance in my life by not inviting more stress. Good things are stressful. And everybody says, what's so great about sobriety? I says, just being okay is a blessing. And if you want to have something great, consider the cost of that great. In order to have great, you have to invest time, effort, money to get to a great experience. Sometimes it's not worth it. Now you have a disappointment if it wasn't great. You know, can you afford that disappointment to take you back up here? Um, these things all intermesh in terms of how you get out of this addiction um, is to remove what caused that need to drink. I started a group in March and I named it Alcohol is Not My Problem. Because alcohol I'm part only of came the group. into... Pardon? I think I'm part of that group. Yeah. Um, and I put any more because if you listen to my story, these things all were there before I took my first sip. And alcohol just became the fire extinguisher of my problems. And unfortunately, alcohol is addictive. And, and, and what I call that alcohol was my low-hanging fruit. It was approved by my family. It was accessible. It was cheap. You know, pot was illegal. So I stayed away from pot, you know, in the open form of life. But if you look at anybody, if you go to a smart meeting, you're sitting next to alcoholics, drug addicts, um, opioid users, you're sitting next to food addicts, sex addicts. We all have the same problem. That was their low-hanging fruit. Just because they're a heroin addict doesn't mean they're dealing with different problems. It's the same damn problem. You just don't know how to regulate yourself. And if you can learn to regulate yourself, that's part one. 
The other part is to get rid of the things that are causing you to get up here. And once you get rid of those things, you know, like my pottery class, I love to do that gave me the time to relax. Because what I say is if you boom, find yourself up here, what can you do to bring yourself down? And if you do something that offsets it, the problem is I never did. I was up here. I was banging the ceiling of all this stuff, work, kids, things, only alcohol to do it. So now if I brought back, you know, the, the wife, the marriage and, and get rid of pottery, look where I'm at. I'm down here. This is where I've been for three years. It took me one year of recovery to figure this stuff out. And the thing is, as I wrote about it today, is the choice you make is compound. You know, you choose not to drink, but that affects so many other things. And it's not quite a domino effect. It's a ripple effect, a butterfly effect, but it does impact all those other choices where my wife would say, let's go out to dinner. And, and if I look, I had a really crummy day, going out to dinner is gonna take two hours out of my day. I don't have, I'll say, no, let's order out. You know, let's stay home instead. So you think of these choices as compound choices, you can then avoid having to say, now it's after work. I mean, if we went out to dinner, now I'm stressed because now I only have between that and bedtime to do the things I normally like to do. When you set out in recovery, set a program, a routine, stick to it. Don't allow anybody to upset that. It's like a new baby. You don't wake a new baby. Don't wake up your routine. Keep it simple. The simpler, the better. That'll give you less opportunities for mistakes and more opportunity to proof out what you want to learn. And that's what this all means inside you. And when you're doing this, follow this brain down here, this thing in your gut, this is where you feel. This is how you feel. The brain's telling you what to do to increase that feeling or decrease it, but the gut's telling you why that feeling's there. So my check-in in the morning, when I wake up, is my first way to figure out what my day is going to be like. Am I tired? Am I feeling great? Did I see the sunrise? Am I exhausted? What's the rest of the day? And then I'm able to pick up the sandbags I need and drop the rest of them I don't need. So I'm already starting my day out with the intention like I did today. So I know I was going to be tired and I got it mapped out in my head after work. I'm going to go in the garden and I'm going to play my new spark amp when it shows up. I mean, these are the good things that are feeding good into my head to override the task at hand. And, and it's, it's just little things like this, you know, and um, that's, that's a big part of my story. Uh, of how I got here and how I stay here is you have to take control and everybody bad mouths. I don't know why, you know, certain forms you get to, it's just, if you mention AA, they kick you out of there, you know? And it's like, the one thing I wouldn't be sober today, if it was not for the serenity prayer, the serenity prayer teaches you to control the things you can and to get rid of anything else you can't. There's such power in those few words. And then you use the wisdom of your experience to know the difference on these compound choices going forward. I got rid of the things I couldn't control, you know, like this work. I can't get rid of it because I owe millions of dollars. So I have to keep it. But what I'm doing is I'm controlling how I respond to it. I know I can't control what the day is going to throw my way, but I've got ammunition in my belt. I know I, after work, I'm going to go in that garden. I'm going to play that guitar and I'm going to sit with my wife and enjoy myself. I'm going to cook something from scratch. I have so much power over my emotions when I'm in control. 
even during this shitstorm of being here at work, um, I'm in control because I know I will be able to do whatever I need to do to get through this day. So if you're going to learn anything, embrace that serenity prayer. Reword it so it doesn't have the God. Pull the God out. You don't need the God part. You just need to know you. God gave you the power inside of you to do this. God gave you the brain to think it through. My three favorite words is I don't drink. And um, just for that reason. So now any choice I make is I don't drink. I'll, I'll, I'll never forget it. I was sitting in the therapy and, and you know, I had that one therapist who said go to AA all the time. He did say one thing. And he told me those three words because when I first got sober this next time out, I was all in. I was reading all the books, going to the meetings. I was in, inpatient. You're learning all that um, cognitive behavior therapy stuff. And so I had tools. I was working them really, really hard. So I go into the meeting. I sat down. And I had my affirmation today. I said, I was proud. I said, Tom, you know, today I'm not going to drink. And he looked at me, he's trying to accuse Quizzical, and he goes, what about tomorrow? And I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, you said you're not drinking today. What about tomorrow? And I said, well, he goes, why don't you just say I don't drink? He goes, that way it takes care of today, tomorrow, and the next day. And those were the three most powerful words. So you got the serenity prayer and I don't drink. Once you don't drink, every other option is yours. You know, you only have one thing you can't do is you don't drink. And when you think of all the other things I can do, man, the world's are oyster. That changed everything. From that day on, those choices were hard. This was not easy. This was the hardest thing I went through. There were some days where I just said, God, take me now. Um, but you can get through this. You know, find a good group. Get a mentor. If you're in AA, get a sponsor, um, journal. Now, here's the interesting part is I had that journal, and that's where I found out what AA didn't help me was stress is what sets me up. Stress is what gets me up here. Google stress in AA, and it's mentioned twice. It's not even in the book. You know, so I'm thinking, wow, here's a whole program I devoted 10 years to that didn't do anything to address stress. Not to, 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 this is not dissing it because it, it picks up on so many other things you're doing, but my, and that's why I say alcohol wasn't my problem. Stress was my problem. Alcohol was the antidote. Alcohol was the pill that the doctor would have given me that, you know, I was on the SSRIs. I had every pill under the sun and that only made things worse because it didn't get rid of the problem. It only masked the problem like the alcohol did. So I was trading a bottle for a pill. Makes no sense to me finally found a therapist that understood addiction. He understood the neuroplasticity of the brain. He understood the, the, the way the, the mind, uh, the addicted mind worked. And he had a tool to help me overcome it that EMDR saved my life. Serenity prayer saved my life. I don't drink saved my life. And you just pick these things up, commit to it, and you can get out from underneath this. How's that? Pretty damn good. I like your story. I like everything you had to say. So my last question for you is, do you have any advice for people watching and listening? Um, I would say get a mentor. Um, oh, here's my big piece of advice. And it's something I really want to write more on. Learn 
how to be uncomfortable. That will be your biggest asset going forward because you're going to be in situations that you'll be pulling your hair out. And most people don't know how to do that because what have we been doing? Boom, you've been slamming that alcohol. You don't know what it's like to not drink. And that means feeling everything inside your body and inside your head. You set off a wildfire of nothing can prepare you for that. So now you're, you're having to deal with all of these things, but you got to start somewhere. And so the biggest thing is to learn self-regulating techniques. Exercise is enormous help for that. You burn that stress off. So exercise has to be daily. You, you should be journaling every day. In the first three months, you should probably go to meetings, if not every day, at least three times a week. Um, and you should have somebody you could call, somebody you could talk to, somebody that knows you, that you trust, that you can bounce these things off of. Um, learn the over-the-counter ways to soothe yourself. There's some nifty little things out there. I don't want to get into that part here, but... Um, you know, there's, there's other ways besides alcohol that you can calm yourself down. And for me, the key was to get off the booze. I did do naltrexone in outpatient. I was that bad. I, I knew I couldn't do it on my own because I tried for 10 years. So I, I felt I needed the antabuse or naltrexone. They put me on it. Truth be told, I had side effects. I had stomach cramps and I had, I, I stopped taking it. I took it again and the cramps came back. So I so here I was at, I think, one month sober with no safety net, and I was struggling, and I, I'll admit I turned to a little bit of CBD now and then to calm things down, but that, that's been long gone, but uh, don't pass up any way you can to not drink. You know, when I, I was going to die, I was one bottle away from dying. My, my vitals, I was passing out from just standing up in this chair. Um, you know, that shaking was real. There was... I was going to die. And that was my motivation to get out of it. Don't let it get to that point to where death is your motivation. Find something in your life that's bigger, larger than your addiction that you can put up there. Create a vision board. Um, that is huge. All these little things really can add and make or break your recovery. I tried everything lean and mean for 10 years. It doesn't work. You've got to go all in. Um, what I did my first weekend is I took off a Friday. I went away for a weekend and I just went from Friday morning to Sunday night, just locked in and rode out that detox. And then Monday I, I went to my first outpatient meeting and just limped through life for that first week. And then just repeated week after week after week. And now I'm like at 1,448 days sober. You know, it's, it's really a beautiful thing. And um, you couldn't pay me to drink again. I, I mean, I'm absolutely that set on sober life. It, it's, it's not great. It's not rainbows and butterflies. It's good. I can get to great, but that's, that costs you. You, you. you have to put effort and time and you sacrifice other things to get great. I'm happy with good. I'm happy with a sunrise, sunset, a picnic on the beach. Um, you know, so learn what else makes you happy. Dig deep inside yourself and proof out your life. And when you do quit, if you haven't already, 
throw everything out. I say almost take off your clothes, stand in the middle of the room naked and pick one thing at a time and say, does this serve me well? Does it make me feel good? And if it doesn't even do those two things, um, there's so much in my life that is so superfluous right now. I could just wash it all away and be the happiest guy ever. You Things like staring death in the face and being addicted as bad as I was, you learn to appreciate life in a way that you don't know until you get there. I think you're there, Jim. Um, and there's lots of people like me that are sober that will say the same thing. It's going to be the best thing you ever did if you can push through this and make it to the other side, as I say. So um, I have a Facebook page. It's called Alcohol is Not My Problem Anymore. I'm also on that Be Sober page quite a bit. Um, you can look up Vig Adams. on, um, And I have, I created that Be Sober page. It's a public page because I write a lot. And I have a ton of stuff that I've written. I actually created two books. I have a guide, a 13 step on how, you know, what I did to quit um, alcohol initially. And then I included it in what I call the Vig book right now. And it's just a compilation of my writing and my story. Um, and that, that just will never stop getting bigger as I go uh, through life until I die. Um, I, I will be creating, and then it's free for download. You don't have to pay for it. You can just download it and read it. Uh, along with a bunch of other documents I have. And I just wanted somewhere publicly quickly go in and grab it without having to sign up and do whatever to get somewhere. And I don't want to charge for it. Um, I don't know if it's that good to even bother, but um, it's my story, my ideas, because I think they're relevant. And I think they take you on some paths that a lot of these traditional programs are just missing. Uh, I'm not saying I have the answer. I have my answer. And my answer was different than anything I've seen out there because there's so many moving parts to all of this that... Um, you know, when you do decide to get sober, take a deep breath, take it one day at a time, one step at a time, one move at a time. You can't do this all at once. You can't just say, I'm not drinking and go on with your life. Here's a healing process that has to take time. I say, give it a year. You have to almost live each day of the year to say next year, I'm going to, you can celebrate that day as a sober anniversary, as opposed to a new day sober. Um, it, there's a lot of value in the milestones and, and making these achievements so you can get sober and stay sober. Um, you know, if anybody's listening and say, I want to hear more, bug me. You know, I, I'm an open book. I, I'm pretty accessible. Um, this is my passion, if you haven't figured that much out. But, um, you know, because I know there's help out there. People like me are willing to help people like everybody here. Um, I hope it made some sense. You know, um, I, I, I'm so blessed to be sober and blessed to be able to hear and share it with you, Jim. Thanks for inviting me. No, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. Did you have anything else you wanted to add in? <sighs> we could be here all day, but no, I think, I think that's a pretty succinct, um, presentation of what I've been through. Um, yeah. You know, get sober and enjoy it. It's really quite a place to be. All right, sounds good. So let's wrap this up. For everybody watching and listening, if you like what you saw and heard, go below and give us a like. Also subscribe to see when we upload new, new videos. You can also check us out at www.addicts-anonymous.com. There you'll find a bunch of resources as well as our food literature tab. There's a bunch of free articles. 
You can also check us out on Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, Facebook. We're also on TikTok. So again, I hope you like what you saw and heard today. That's all I have. And until next time.